At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. I was like, that's fine. I'll start, but I was like, I still want to hit BP before the game, and I still want to play catch with my throwing partner. Welcome into another episode of Baseball America's interview series from Phenom to the Farm, where we're talking to former professional baseball players to reminisce about their playing days and what they learned on their journey from amateur ball to the professional ranks. I'm your host, Kyle Banduho. For listeners of this podcast and for you know probably most Baseball America readers, today's guest needs little introduction. Michael Roth had one of the most memorable college baseball careers of the past 30 years, two-time national champion at South Carolina, who had moments of his career that became legend. A spur-of-the-moment start in the 2010 College World Series, which catapulted to a reputation of becoming one of the best big-game pitchers in college baseball history. Uh, Michael talks about his rise at South Carolina, his initial desire to play first base instead of pitch, and how far that desire to play first base actually went, and also what it's like going from Division I ace, campus legend, to a broke minor leaguer with student loan debt who's forced to sleep in an apartment kitchen. I'm very grateful that Michael took the time to join this episode. I was thrilled to have him. I think that's going to come through in the episode big fan of his career and and kind of just that rise I think any college baseball fan remembers that 2010 college world series and, and Michael stepping up in that Clemson game really fun to uh to hear that firsthand episodes of from phenom to the farm drop every other Tuesday if you enjoy this one subscribe wherever you get your podcast go check out past interviews and if you haven't yet leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. maybe shout out a player you'd like to hear on the podcast and I will See if I can track them down. I'll do my best. Also, make sure you subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com and the BA podcast feed for all amateur baseball and prospect news. It is draft season. The day this episode drops is day three of the draft, and the BA team is there with coverage on all the draft storylines. Just a bang-up job by everyone at BA this year. Uh, Carlos Colazzo, Ben Badler, JJ Cooper, the entire staff. Uh, awesome draft coverage. It is something I'm really looking forward to to diving into this week. Um, so yeah, everyone subscribe to BA, check out that draft coverage. And with that, let's talk to Michael Roth. All right, joining in for today's episode from Phenom to the Farm, he's a left-hand pitcher. He was a ninth-round pick of the Angels in the 2012 draft out of the University of South Carolina. Two-time national champion Michael Roth. Michael, thanks so much for joining from Phenom to the Farm. 
Of course, Kyle. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I've I've been looking this for a while. A huge fan of your career from afar. I want to jump right into it. Um, as far as growing up in South Carolina, growing up, you know, were you a baseball only guy? Were you a multi-sport guy? When did you kind of realize that that baseball was your ticket to the next level of athletics? Yeah, I was definitely a multi-sport guy growing up. Um, you know, played played baseball ever since I was younger, though. Uh, played soccer, played basketball, and I played basketball even in high school. Um, except I didn't play my senior year, but yeah, you know, I was one of those kids that my favorite sport. Um, at the time was kind of the the sport that you were in the middle of the season of <laughs> and but baseball was kind of always my my main love ever since I was younger I, you know I wanted to be a professional baseball player ever since I could really remember so baseball was kind of always the main the main love and the main focus but I definitely played multiple sports growing up and when you got into high school and started to think about the next level you know kind of what you would be at college um, you you know you end up at South Carolina playing both ways when you get there did you have you know any sort did you always want to be a, a two-way guy in college or in high school did you you know did you think you were more of a first baseman more of a pitcher um, how did that kind of shake out yeah, when I was getting, you know, when I was coming along my in my high school like career, I was always, you know, I'd pitch just because I was left-handed and and I was always pretty good at it, but I just really wanted to play the field. I liked playing every day. Um, you know, I I would say the main reason I was recruited to South Carolina was as a as a first baseman as a hitter. Obviously, that's not how it ended up turning out, but for me as a player, I really enjoyed playing. I've never really been a huge watcher of baseball. I've it's always been I enjoy the game and I enjoy playing. And so for me the the most the way to get on the field the most was to be a position player and player every day. So I really thought, you know, my I would say my highest ceiling as a player and as an athlete was as a position player. And you mentioned South Carolina. You know what made South Carolina the choice? Since he's no longer coaching, you can just give away. You know, does Ray Tanner have a secret? Like, how does he land? How did he land? Especially those classes that that you know brought South Carolina those titles. What's the Ray Tanner secret sauce? <laughs> um, it's a good question. You know, I think if you look at our classes, we we probably didn't have. You know, I think we maybe were on. We were ranked as as a recruiting class for those few years, but but some of them weren't probably the most sexy classes. Um, just from uh, guys that had been recruited or guys that had been drafted, you know, we didn't have a ton of um, I guess like guys that were on the cusp of going in the draft. But you know, for me personally, when I was getting recruited. I would say growing up, you know, I, I I grew up in Greenville, South Carolina, and, you know, there's a lot more Clemson fans in this area than South Carolina fans. But, you know, my mom was from England, my dad was from New York, so I never had a, I didn't really grow up with, with an allegiance, quite frankly. So when I started getting recruited, recruited, it was South Carolina was one of the first to, they were the first team to offer me. And then recruiting season kind of opened up my junior junior fall um and then you know I talked to Clemson I talked to UNC and you know before that going into that I I initially was like 
I kind of want to go off and play at Stanford or play somewhere way away from Greenville. And, um, you know, I never thought once I left Greenville, I would ever come back. That was kind you, of my... You live, in, you live in Greenville now, correct? Correct, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I never thought I would ever come back, but but here I am today as a 31-year-old living here. But, you know, when it came down to it, it was really between Clemson and Carolina. Um, I, I felt like, you know, I started realizing that it would be cool for my parents to be able to come to the games and, and watch me. And I went on an official visit at, at Carolina, and it just felt like... You know, it felt like home, and I think Coach Tanner was just pretty pretty open. He was honest, and at the time, you know, Monty Lee was there. Uh, Jim Toman was coaching still, so it was a little bit different staff that I had. You know, Mark Calvey was still there, but, but it was still a different staff than what my freshman year ended up being. But, you know, it just felt like the right place to be. And what kind of expectations did you have going into your freshman year as far as being a, a two-way position player? Did you did they kind of lay out one path or another of, hey, you're going to get a real chance to do both, or we like you more as this, but you can try this? Um, yeah, you know, it really, I would say, I think they thought and I thought that my future was as a first baseman, you know, Justin Smoke had just been, was getting drafted that year in the summer of 2008. And so I would have been coming in that fall. And so the first base position was up for grabs. They had brought in, you know, it was really a new team, I think, for the 2008-2009 the year. So the 2009 season was really a, a full new team. We had a bunch of JUCO guys that they brought in. And, um, you know, that, that summer going into it, I had actually pitched at the Sarge for like a summer ball game. And uh, Coach Calvi pulled me aside and was like, hey, I know you don't really want to pitch here but would you mind throwing in the fall and just getting some reps? And I was like, no, that's fine. I don't, I don't care. So really my main focus when I went in as a freshman was to, was to try to step in and win that first base position. And, you know, there was a lot of reasons why that, that didn't happen. But uh, thankfully Coach Calvi got me to throw, and, and that's what, what kind of got me on the field at all. My freshman year was, was – uh, just being a lefty that could throw strikes. So in that fall, when you're trying to make inroads as both a position player and a pitcher, what what is that first fall like when you're trying to do two things? What's the most difficult part of that jump? You know, I think the the most difficult part was really just being a freshman um, and trying to make adjustments on the fly, trying to be coachable, but at the same time, you know, believing in who you are as a player and trusting that. Um, you know, and, and you're going from being, you know, one of the best players in your area or your best player in your on your team to now you're kind of the low man in the totem pole. So for me, the hardest adjustment wasn't necessarily just the the le- the amount of work. It was more just the, the mental part of it and trying to, um, you know, just trying to adjust to, to the different speed of the game. And the, you're playing, but you're facing better pitching. You're facing better bat better hitters um and it was just it was a tougher transition for me than i thought and as a guy who your primary focus was first base is what you wanted to do in college and then with with how you ended up you know 
when you leave South Carolina, you're, you're regarded as, you know, crafty, very polished pitcher. You know, you did a lot of different things on the mound. Where were you as a freshman as far as having a, a grasp on the craft of pitching since it hadn't been your priority? Yeah, you know, I think coming in, I, I would say I, I was always, you know, I never threw hard. That was never, you know, I think I hit 86 miles an hour as a freshman in high school. And when I graduated as a senior, I I'm pretty sure my max velocity was like 86 as well. So it wasn't not consistent. (laughs) Right. Yeah. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like I had a massive jump in velocity and it wasn't due to a lack of effort. Um, I think it was just one of those things that I always learned how to pitch. Um, You know, I just, I had always known how to pitch and I learned how to pitch when I was younger. And so I think that helped me as I was coming along. That definitely helped me as a freshman and that part of the reason I got into the games was just, you know, I threw strikes. We had a lot of guys that, that were Juco guys or knew that year that, that really just couldn't pound the strike zone enough. And, and if there's anything that coach Tanner hates, it would be walks. He can't, could not stand that as a coach. He could not stand sitting there and, and, um, just giving free bases. And so he'd rather you get smacked around the, the field than, than give up a bunch of walks. So, you know, that, that was part of why I was able to get in. So I think from now, I think I was certainly a different pitcher as a freshman than I was as a senior. But I think part of what made me successful too was, quite frankly, not, not caring. <laughs> you know, and it wasn't that I didn't want to perform well. It was more like my focus was... I wanted to do well and perform well as a hitter and on the field and pitching was just kind of like a backup plan. It was your side hustle. Yeah, exactly. I think it was kind of like, I think that allowed me to just pitch very like carefree and just kind of not necessarily care how, what the results were. And funny, you know, funny enough, life that I think that typically is the case whenever you can you can be on that cusp of like caring and not caring is usually when you can have some pretty good results that's when you can slow your mind down on the hill yeah yeah certainly what is uh what is gear day like for a guy who plays both ways are you the the most envied guy in the locker room (laughs) you know it was um (laughs) it was one of those things where I would try to I would try to angle for more and more gloves, honestly, because, you know, I got a first baseman and I got a pitcher's glove. And one of the things that they didn't want to give me was an outfielder's glove. So I would try to, and even though I would like occasionally go play in the outfield. So they, you know, I wouldn't say that they, they gave me a whole lot more than the typical player. Cause we, you know, at South Carolina having the under armor contract and everything, we got a pretty substantial amount of gear. So sometimes I had to try to angle for some more gloves, which carrying two to three gloves down to the field in any given day was a little bit of a pain anyways. That that makes sense. That does make sense. But you got you to angle for it. You had to try. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, so uh, I assume, you know, you mentioned you, you started for your high school team, and it's the, the, the case with most guys who, who get to play in the SEC. Um, how did you, how do you mentally adjust to being a baseball player and a bullpen guy as for like when you go in every weekend, what was kind of your hope for the weekend? So you didn't have a carved out role. Yeah, that's, um, you know, I think as a freshman, you were really just trying to get in the game 
and just be ready in whatever role possible. I would say one of the, one of the roles that I had that was fairly limited because I, I did a pretty poor job in my in my initial opportunities was getting some pinch at bats. You know, one of the things that you never you're never taught, um, and it's it's hard to learn is is how to be a pinch hitter. You know, when you go from being a high school athlete and and you're hitting and playing every day. You're just used to seeing pitching. I mean, how often do you ever pinch hit next to, you know, nothing that never really happens. And so when you come in as a freshman in that college role, that that becomes like a viable option now. And I'll never forget my first pinch hit opportunity. I, I literally watched three straight fastballs right down the middle. And um, that's not what you <laughs> that you know, no, that is that is the opposite of how to how to pinch hit. And so I, you know. I never, I didn't know how to do that. And my freshman year, I was, I was pretty poor at it. Now, as I got, as you know, as I got older and in my junior and senior year, it almost became, you know, I had learned how to pinch hit and had some pretty good, pretty good at bats as a pinch hitter because I, I had been there. I had known, you know, I knew how to approach it rather than being like an everyday guy. And also I think it goes back to that, like, I knew that like my my main role was to be a starting pitcher and a leader for the team and just the opportunity to pinch hit was more of like the fun that I got to have. And so I think again it kind of freed me up and allowed me to have more fun as a pinch hitter later on in my career. So you know when I when I was going in from like a weekend for my freshman year, it was hoping to get a pinch hit opportunity. And then really it was just kind of mopping up innings whenever I could. So the fall of your sophomore year, you, uh, a coach sees you throwing the ball from first base, side arming it, you know, asked you to try that out. And that, that becomes a thing that works for you. But how, what is the process that you add that to your repertoire of being able to drop down, give a different angle, throw some different pitches from down there. What what goes into the the work of you know it's one thing to say you know the ball comes out pretty well when you're down there it looks good to having the confidence to you're in a three two spot in a game having the confidence to say I can drop down and dot this somewhere yeah that's a good question you know I think it's important to kind of go back again to who I was as a pitcher maybe before that so even though I was left handed at you know. I was more of a righty specialist as a pitcher. I had a really good changeup. It was kind of like a tumbling changeup. And then, you know, I had like a two-seamer action. And I would say my breaking stuff wasn't wasn't the best. I, I wouldn't, you know, I, I'm not sure my, my splits from lefty and righty my freshman year. But, um, you know, I... I think I was better at getting righties out that year than getting lefties out. And so coming into the fall, you know, I, I had a good summer playing, but again, I, I didn't pitch. I was out hitting when I went to the Sanford Mainers for that summer at the NECBL. And when I came back in the fall, I was, you know, again, trying to vie for like a first base spot or an opportunity to hit. Um, even though, you know, Nick Ebert was coming back after hitting like, all the home runs the year before and and Christian Walker was was uh joining us although at the time he was more of a a third baseman going into that year so again I was still trying to make a push as a hitter but 
and, and so as part of that, I was turning double plays at first base and Mark Calvey kind of pulled me aside after turning, you know, a handful of double plays. And he was like, have you ever thought about dropping down? And I kind of looked at him like I thought he was crazy. And I was like, no, why, why the hell would I do that? Um, <laughs> you know, and he was like, well, he was like, well, honestly, he's, he's like, you need to get lefties out. And he, he's like, we need somebody that gets lefties out because right now you're a righty specialist. Um, and I think he told me my splits at the time, but he's like, right now he's like, he's like, we don't need another righty specialist. He goes, we got two side arm, two side armors and, and Matt price in the bullpen. You know, why would we go to you versus going to those three? And he was like, let's go throw a bullpen. So I went through a bullpen and threw it all sidearm. And I remember it was, you know, pretty, I wouldn't say it was like a bad bullpen, but again, it wasn't like polished by any means. Cause it was the first time dropping down, throwing like 20, 20 in a row sidearm. And he looked at me, he was like, you need to stick with this because if you want to get on the field, this is really the only way that you're going to be able to get on there. And I remember walking out of there and I was kind of like, I guess like what the hell, you know, with like lack of trying not to cuss even more um, <laughs> was uh, I remember going to Pat Sullivan who was kind of doing that as a righty kind of varying his arm angles. And he told me to Calvi told me to go talk to Pat cause Pat threw a pretty good sli- slider down there. And I asked Pat how he threw it and he was like, are you dropping down now? And I was like, I was like, they basically told me I had to. <laughs> so, um, that was, I mean, that was kind of how it happened. It was, it was more of like a, it was more of like a, hey, if you want to pitch and, and you want to play at all, this is this is your path forward. So, from gaining the confidence to being able to execute a pitch, I didn't really have a, I didn't really have a choice. You know, if I wanted to play, that was going to be my option. Um, Basically, you better have confidence in it, or you'll go home. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if it was ultimately like figure it out from there or you're not going to play. So that spring, you guys are on the road to Omaha. Uh, you have 16 outings that are a third of an inning long. Really a lost art just because of the rules in the big leagues now. The the left-handed only guy is is the thing of the past, really. Can you walk me through the one batter outing process, like getting all hyped for about you a know, minute and 30 seconds of action? Yeah, so... You know that was that was kind of hard to learn too, honestly. Um, one of the things about again being in the bullpen because because that year I started going down to the bullpen basically from the start. Um, you know, my freshman year I would try to hang out and in, in the dugout in the hopes of being more of a more of a, a hitter versus a bullpen guy, and then and then my sophomore year I kind of kind of gave up on that and really was going down to the bullpen very you know, from the beginning of the game. And so the hard part for me was really just trying to like to lock in to the game. And so what I did was I just didn't pay attention. Quite frankly, I just, there was no way for me to be able to pay attention to the game from the first, from the first pitch to the last. So I would just kind of hang out in the bullpen and just get ready when called upon. I would say I've never been the type of pitcher that needed like a ton of emotion you know I never pitched like I never pitched on adrenaline that was just never something that I was able to do never good at and so it you know I think 
there are a lot of bullpen guys that do that. I just could not do that. So for me, it was more of just getting the adequate warmups in and then coming in and doing the job that I knew I, that I knew that I was being brought in to do, whether it was one, one batter or three batters. So you do a good job with that your entire, you know, your entire sophomore year. You guys, you know, again, you make it to Omaha and now it's time to, uh, I got to ask you about the story that you've probably, you probably get asked about every other day. You guys beat OU, uh, pitching, you know, pitching staff's taxed. Um, you know, you pitch in that OU game, you survive to move on to face Clemson. When did the possibility of starting that game come across your radar? Like when you guys finished your game against OU, did you think, Hey, I might be the guy who gets the call to face Clemson? No, not at all. I mean, you know, the, we finished our game, walked off and was, we were still in the field and in, in the dugout, like cleaning up and coach Holbrook looked at me and was like, Hey, be ready to pitch tomorrow. And I remember thinking like, yeah, no like, you know, kind of throw. I think I, at that point I had like 35 outings. So I was like, yeah, 35 outings in like 60 games. Like, Just yeah, playing of course. the stats, I probably am going <laughs> to yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, I had a pretty good chance. And so, you know, like didn't even think anything of it. I just thought that was like the weirdest comment. Um, and then I got back in the bus and somebody – I think it was again. Yeah, I think it was like Coach Holbrook or somebody asked me. They're like, "Hey, will you be good to pitch tomorrow?" And I was like, "Yeah, of course." So, you know, we go back to the um, we go back to the hotel and like Coach Tanner and Calvi walk in for curfew check, and they ask me. I forget which one it was, but one of them asked me, "Hey, you know, would you be okay to start tomorrow?" And I was like. Yeah, I guess, but me and my roommate were kind of too preoccupied with what was on the TV, so they had felt like they had told me that I was starting that then at that time. I don't necessarily remember it that way, but, um, you know, we woke up the next morning and everybody was asking me if I was starting. I told them I didn't really know because I didn't, I didn't know, and, um, the way that I found out was my mom shot me a text and was like, congratulations. And I was like, what are you talking about? Or she said, good luck. And I was like, good luck with what? And she <laughs> sent me like a screenshot of like a press release from something saying that I was starting. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. So that was kind of how I found out. Um, and it may, may have been because my lack of paying attention to when they were coming in to, to check us for curfew. I mean, that, that must have helped out in some way because things, I mean, things, like, how do you prepare for that start, your first college start, or at least, you know, college World Series start? Did did the staff give you any sort of expectation, like, hey, man, get us five innings or anything? Was there any anything on the table of, like, if you can get us this, we'll take it home? Well, the only thing that I really, so let me go back when I, you know, when they did ask me if I could start, I said I would. I was like, that's fine. I'll start, but I was like, I still want to hit BP before the game, and I still want to play catch with my throwing partner, who was Parker Bangs at the time. We like, <laughs> we like, you know, played catch before every game. These are my list of demands. <laughs> this game. Pretty much, yeah. And they were like, yeah, that's fine. You don't have to like change your routine. So I was like, okay, cool. Then I, I'm I'm fine to start. And so I would say, from you talk about preparation to start. I mean, there was nothing we had no discussions of like how long that I could go, you know, coach Tanner, there was, so when I was leaving the hotel, coach Tanner and I rode down in the elevator together. 
Um, we just happened to like run into each other at the same time. And he asked me, he was like, how many in do you think you got in you? And I remember just telling him, I was like, you know, I was like, probably one. I was like, but I'll just throw until my arm falls off. And he goes, oh, what is that one? You know, maybe one. And so, uh, you know, I don't, I definitely don't think they expected me to get five. I don't even, and they definitely didn't expect me to throw a complete game. But I think they were just hoping to get the game off on the right foot and try to piecemeal it together. You know, unfortunately, it was, you know, a complete game that, that kind of, changed the course of my career yeah nine innings three hits one run i watched the ninth inning earlier today before it starts you're reading something in your hat you're you're kind of in uncharted territory in every aspect of your career at that point what are you what are you reading i think was it a scouting report i know some guys had had verses or pump up messages on the bill of their hat like what are you or do you just like need something to look at to kind of take the moment in yeah so um i actually I don't think I was reading anything in my head. I think it was more of just before I would step on the mound, I would just kind of take a deep breath to like, just relax. Um, you know, after you do your warm ups and like before you start the inning, it's, I always just like to take like, I guess almost like make yourself present. Sometimes you can mentally, you can be worried about the pitch that you just threw or the pitch that's coming up. And so I felt like that time to kind of step back and then before you step on the mound, like taking like some time to like just make yourself present in the moment, that really helped me as as a pitcher. And I think that's probably the moment that you're referring to. Yeah, well, you, you have this career-changing start. You beat Clemson. Uh, you, got, you start against UCLA. A few days later, you guys beat UCLA. You win a national championship. How how soon after that those two starts did you realize that your your baseball career trajectory had changed as a whole? You know, I, I would say I, I didn't really think about it, to be honest with you. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly. An AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write. So I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Um, you know, obviously I went to, I went from being a guy in the bullpen and made two starts in the postseason. That didn't, nef- that didn't necessarily solidify me starting the next year. You know, and I, I went off and played, <laughs> 
as I as I like to do, I went off and played at the the NECBL again, and I was playing first base. I wasn't I wasn't <laughs> pitching, you know. So can't give up the first base stream, <laughs> right? So you know, I knew that I knew that coming back as a as a junior that I would have an opportunity to to pitch and and play an integral role. But again, it wasn't for sure as as a starter, I, I definitely remember some of the conversations in the fall they, that there was, you know, discussion as to whether I should start or, you know, whether they should leave me in that, that role of being like the left-handed guy and, and being able to pitch multiple innings now, you know, because now that I had done it, it was something that they could prove to me, but I could also go and face, um, I could also go and, and, you know, face one batter or I could go face nine. So there, there was, there was no guarantee that I was going to be a starter. I would say as it got later and later into the fall practice. And then again, as we started to approach the season, it became apparent that I was going to be one of the weekend starters. And then as we kind of got down to it, it was, you know, I, I got the opportunity to be the Friday night guy. And with that, I mean, you seem like a guy who was fairly relaxed on the mound, but you you step into the Friday night role. So suddenly you're the ace. You have you're a national champion. You're essentially a college world series hero. You have this start that was a, it was a big deal on ESPN. It was a huge story. There's there's expectations on you now. You're a guy who you know. Is there any pressure in your mind of having to be the guy who pitched against Clemson for an entire year, facing the you know the sunny grays of the world and the, the SEC Friday night guys? You know, I would say I'm sure there was pressure, but for me as an athlete, um, right or wrong, um, I don't think there was anybody or anything that probably put more pressure on me than myself. So, you know, I wasn't necessarily worried about external pressure. It was more the pressure that, that I could put on myself. Now, I would say that I was, you know, fortunately I was I was pretty – good at um kind of deflecting some of that you know knowing that I was the Friday night guy and and I felt like at the time everybody that I was facing was like a high draft pick it made me um it made me the underdog you know and when you're that you don't you don't have there there's really no pressure on you you're you're expected to lose right like if it's at the time when it was me facing Sonny Gray like everybody, you know, the betting odds were going to be on Sunny Gray. So for me, you know, it just was like, go out there and play and have fun. Um, and so when I, when I kept doing that night in and night out, it, it was, it just became a comfortable scenario for me. And thankfully we just had a, a really good team and, you know, I was able to limit the damage and, and pitch really well, but we also scored a bunch of runs and played incredible defense behind me, which, which made my job even easier limit the damage is kind of an understatement for your, your junior year, but can you tell the folks what your warm up song was and how long it took to pick that? Oh gosh. I don't even remember what I, I get them all blended together. I'm not sure. Was that want to dance with somebody? Was that, that is, that is, that is what I am referencing. Yeah. This. Yeah. Um, you know, I just, I always liked happy songs. I liked, I liked to be able to like sing when I was warming up with it. So, um, I felt like that was just a, that was a good, you know, that's a classic jam that, that appeals to the masses. It's, um, you know, it gets, it got people going that were in college, you know, got the, 
got the older people going. So, and I just thought it was like fun and upbeat. It's it's always a hit at weddings, and it's so <laughs> I, I I had a non traditional walk up song myself, like warm up song myself. So I, I very much respect that. But um, so as as a team who most of these guys in your team already have a ring, you, you know, Jackie Bradley, Christian Walker, is there more pressure during the second title run? Or are you kind of playing with house money at that point? You know, I think we, we, again, we had put a lot of pressure on us. Um, I think we put a lot of pressure on us as uh, by ourselves. You know, I don't, I don't think the external pressure was there so much as, you know, you had guys like Adrian Morales getting, um, you know, get, getting on, getting on the younger guys and, and even getting on the older guys, you know, you had, you had guys that like Jackie who were trying to have a, a standout year to get drafted. Um, so I, I just think we had a, a solid group of like leaders, guys that, that were willing to, you know, willing to jump on each other and, and knew what it took to play well. And so they, um, I would say the pressure we put on ourselves wasn't, like wasn't the bad pressure it was the pressure that that we collectively came together to to get better as a team you know and when we faced adversity it was it was coming together as a team to to overcome that so i wouldn't say that we even you know at the time i can't remember any pressure and now that i look back on it i I really can't even remember any external forces other than you know we knew our fans wanted to win but that was that was a given, you know, we, we kind of knew the, we knew Carolina fans, um, and the, and the pressure that they, that they put on us to win. And, but that was nothing new. Was going 10 and 0 in the postseason was that as easy as it looks on paper? Were there any moments of legitimate stress there? Like, you know, cause on paper it looks like, Hey, we just breeze through. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, what's funny is I'll be honest with you. I did not even recognize or, or know that, we had that we had gone to Nino. I wouldn't even say that that was like a thing that I realized even after we won. Um, I didn't even know that we had had like we were close to like on a streak, so or like breaking a record, right? I, I had no clue. I just wasn't. I think that was just maybe maybe that was my aloofness, or maybe it was just you know maybe that was a good sign of we were so wrapped up in in playing and having fun that we just didn't pay attention to kind of the 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 media stuff and the stuff that that didn't really apply to what we were trying to do or what we were trying to accomplish now when you look back on it um it's pretty impressive i would say you look at some of those teams that we played and you know 2011 i think that was yukon um that was probably the you know one of the first major tests right you're playing a, a strong a strong team and I think Barnes started that first game and, and Springer was on that team too wasn't he yeah Springer was Springer was in the outfield and I think we only won by like a run or two that for that first one so it wasn't you know it's not like we we ran away with it by any means and then um I think that very first game you know the very first game in, in Omaha when we go down to Texas A&M what four five nothing in the first and you know you you got to give our hitters a ton of credit because they basically wipe they they wiped that away immediately and it went back to a zero zero ball game basically until the ninth inning you start three more games in that college world series and that's after a, a spring of you know being the friday night guy and and having that role is there 
is there a difference between a big college world series start and like a, you know, big sec start, like going, you know, going to a Vanderbilt or an LSU on the road? Like what, what adjustments, is there anything different in how you go about your business in the college world series? You know, the biggest thing I think about the college world series is really just trying to bounce back as quick as you can. Um, in season, you've got, you've got pretty much six days guaranteed to recovery, you know? And, and that's pretty much like clockwork. Um, I don't think they started that may have been like the very beginning 2011 may have been the very first year with like Thursday night games. But so it was rare that you may have been rushed a day. Right. So the big thing about the college world series from a starting, starting pitcher perspective is, you know, you're, you're pitching on a Saturday and you're trying to get ready almost, you know, to pitch on three days, four days rest. And I think that's probably the biggest difference from the standpoint of the teams that you're playing. I think it's, it's the same, you know, you're, you're playing, you know, that you're, you're playing the top eight teams or the top seven teams in the country. And, you know, you're, you're going to face a good lineup and you kind of have to prepare for it. Like it is just a regular, you know, SEC game for us. And, but again, I'd say the biggest difference is just trying to speed your recovery and shorten that that downtime. Another story you've probably had to tell a million times or get asked about every week. Um, you know, one of the more compelling stories that year: your dad having to quit his job to come to Omaha <laughs> to watch you pitch. While I'd love to go on a tangent about how employers treat their workforce, uh, can you just talk about the difference it made in having your dad there because he was not there the the you know the year you broke out in Omaha. Yeah, it was, um, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I look back on that time because that was like, I guess like the, the forefront of, of Twitter. And um, I think I, I posted something as like, because I think it was on Father's Day when I posted that, I'm pretty sure. And I, I definitely had no, I did not think it would become like a, a big story. And um, of course it did. And, but I would say really the only thing was just me like appreciating my dad being able to be there. Cause you know, he was instrumental in, in my playing career. I can always remember when I was younger, you know, we, he would come home from work and we'd go and like hit wiffle balls in the backyard with, with like me jumping up, trying to get the floodlight to like flicker on for like 30 seconds and hit, and then, you know, have to do it again to get the floodlight to stay on. And so, I would say, you know, it was cool for my dad to be able to be there when he wasn't able to be there in, in 2010 um, when, you know, when I made a start against Clemson and when we won the national championship. So it was, it was really cool for him to be able to be there. You, you know, you guys, you guys repeat as national champions. You pitch the, you know, the winning game in the College World Series. You get drafted by the Indians in the 31st round a little bit before that. And like most draftees, you instead go to Spain to, uh, <laughs> to, to study abroad. You know, you'd, at that point, you'd proved your viability as a baseball player. And I'd imagine the offer that was on the table in the 31st round wasn't earth shattering, but like you you might not be a top level prospect, but you've reached big man on campus status. At least what kept you kind of taking your studies seriously, choosing to go study abroad as opposed to doing baseball things that summer? Yeah. Um, quite frankly, I had to for my degree. Uh, so first and foremost, 
I was an international business major. As part of an IB major, you had to have a study abroad. Um, so that study abroad could be like a two-week Maymaster, which obviously I could not do because I was in the middle of – that would be in the middle of the season. Um, most kids in that major do like a, a full semester-long study abroad. Again, not a viable option for me as an athlete. So I did the – I did like a four-week program in Alicante, Spain, and – you know, July was the only possible option for me in order to do that, which I had to have in order to graduate. So, you know, I wanted to play professional baseball, but I also, I had to have that for my degree. Like that was not, that was the only time that I could do that if I wanted to potentially graduate within, within four years and not do a victory lap. And so, so that was part of it. I would say, you know, the second part of it, when going into that year, you know, my thought was like, oh, if I got drafted and they paid me, you know, call it X amount of dollars, um, I was like, oh, yeah, I'd definitely go. And then as my year kind of progressed, I wouldn't say that, like, I started changing what my dollar value was, but um, Brian Busher was on the coaching staff that year, and he was on the staff as a... Um, as a student coach. And so that was, he was going back to school that year, getting, finishing up his degree after he had played about, you know, I think it was like a 10 year career. Um, and part, you know, five, I think it was like parts of five years in the big league. So he, he made some money, but I, I'll, I'll never forget. We would sit there and talk and, you know, he, he told me about how that was basically the hardest year of his life. Um, you know, he's moving back to Columbia, his, He's a 30-year-old back in school with, like, 20- and 22-year-olds. Um, his wife was having to get a job. They had a baby. His bank account kept going down, you know. So I think for me it became, like, the realization of if I was going to leave, it needed to be a very compelling argument to to leave and get drafted, you know, and forego having my degree in my back pocket. So... When I was drafted, you know, when draft day came, I was talking to various teams, and I think the the system is pretty broken just from these teams want to know, you know, how draftable are you? What will you pay? You know, what what will they pay you, right? You know, and I I was a 21-year-old, and I was a business major, and one, I thought I was super smart, but also, you know, at the time, I, I could have no representation, technically, you know, if I had had an agent, I would have, I could have been, um, I could have gotten in, in NCAA trouble, which we all obviously all now realize is a bunch of bull. But the, um, the big thing that I would say is like, you know, I was a 20 year old, 21 year old trying to negotiate against a, a $1 billion, $2 billion, $3 billion organization. And so what they wanted you to do was they would say, well, what will you sign for? And, you know, I, I had taken a negotiation class, and so I basically was like, you know, just I told teams to that I didn't know what the number was. You know, I told them, you know, I didn't know if it was, you know, a hundred, a hundred grand, five hundred grand, or five hundred million. But I just told them to draft me where they thought I was worth, and we could, we could negotiate from there. Well, clearly, teams didn't like to hear that because they want to, when they draft you, they want to know they have a sure thing, and. So I ended up slipping to the 31st round. The Indians called me, and I would—I remember I had my—we had just won, and like, got back to Omaha. I stayed, or got back from Omaha. I stayed in Columbia that night, and the next day I was like packing up my stuff, 
and my um the indians guy called me and he was like hey i hear you're going to spain i was like yes i'm flying out friday and i get back august 6th i think is when i got back or august 7th and i was like so i know i was like you'll have we'll have a week to negotiate a deal i was like so that way you guys can sign all the guys that you have and you can figure out how much money you have left to pay me (laughs) so um he was like all right well uh is there anybody i could talk to while you're gone i was like yeah if you have any questions here's my mom's number and you can call her. And so that's kind of how it went down. Um, you know, I think thankfully there's guys now that can, can hire representation and, um, maybe be better equipped, um, negotiating those deals. Well, I mean, now they have hard slot money, so it really doesn't even matter. But, um, that was the last year of kind of, you know, negotiating your deal and, and going through the, the bullshit of, you know, what are you signed for? What is your, what are you worth, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So you, you end up turning down the Indians. You go back to South Carolina for your senior year. How much, how'd your life change around campus as the guy with first the Clemson game and now two college world series under your belt and a national player of the year award and that stuff like in class at bars or in parties, like what is life like for Michael Roth you know, off campus or on campus as a senior versus, you know, as a freshman? Yeah. Um, you know, it was definitely a little bit different. Um, I would say, you know, teachers recognized me more. Um, and you know, there were, there were just some more, more times when I was recognized versus as a freshman year, nobody. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't say that it was like drastically different. You know, I definitely, I would say the people, it was more around like Columbia, like when you would, when we'd go out to like, when you'd run, you know, go to like Moe's or like Groucho's, you, you would run into fans more that would recognize you or, or want to talk to you rather than students, you know, students were, were playing it cool. So it, it was more of just interacting with fans and, um, you know, it was a lot of fun. You were arguably the second most famous athlete in South Carolina at that time. Did you ever, uh, did you ever run into Stephen Garcia at any of his, <laughs> any of his whatever Stephen Garcia did? Yeah, yeah, I knew Stephen well. He's, he was a good guy. Um, I think he got a little bit of a raw deal when he was, when he was there, and, and definitely near the end. But um, yeah, Stephen. Stephen Garcia is an absolute lord, and welcome on this podcast to talk about little league or anything else. <laughs> I think we could arrange that. Stephen's Stephen's awesome. He's a great guy. He, um, you know, we ran in similar circles. We had some 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 of the same friends, and so he he was a good dude. And um, I hate how his how his career ended there because it was unfortunate. But you know, he was a gamer. I think he was just. Um, you know, I think he would probably agree that he made some dumb, dumb decisions, but you know, we're, we're also 18 to 22 year olds at the time too. You know, we weren't necessarily always thinking with, uh, with the right brain. Well, it's something that I'd be interested to get your take on and, and just considering the, especially the, the notoriety that you had and a guy like Stephen Garcia had in Columbia as of last week, that would have been a marketable skill. Uh, you know, had you guys been playing in, in NIL days, what is, you know, what's a, what's a senior year, Michael Roth with two, you know, two college world series titles. What is that guy? What is that guy worth in Columbia? You know, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily know, 
you know what kind of money that would bring in um but i i would i would definitely bet that i would not have graduated with uh with student loans <laughs> had the uh nil rights been in place back back when i was playing so so you won two college world series for south carolina uh won a national player of the year award and you graduated with student debt yeah i mean the, you know the ncaa rules are such that it baseball gets next to nothing for scholarships mm-hmm. you know and and south carolina was great to me um and i had a number of you know i had another number of academic scholarships but you know my family like we didn't you know I pretty much my, my family definitely helped me but you know my school was Let's see. I think I had. I was at forty percent my first three years, and then when they, you know, when I, in order to bring me back as part of like, hey, please come back your senior year, they gave, they bumped me up to sixty, you know, and and that obviously I was even on the higher end because if you have eleven point seven scholarships to divvy out between twenty seven players, um, you know, and there's thirty five guys on a roster, there's just not that's not a whole lot of money to go around. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, at a school like South Carolina, who would love to give more scholarships to baseball programs, it's just, you know, it's not allowed. And, um, yeah, unfortunately, it was just, you know, that was kind of the rules at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I'm very glad that NIL has become a thing. And it's, it's made for some incredible, incredible tweets lately. Just yeah. guys sponsoring random stuff. Uh, just yeah. incredible, incredible stuff. No, and I mean, I think what's, you know, what's going to be really interesting is like, you know, we're in the middle of like the influencer age anyways, but I would say my level of like being on Twitter and Instagram definitely fell off as I left school. And, and part of that we could probably get into from me being a professional athlete. But, you know, I think the athletes that are, you know, smart enough and have the ability to like create quality content on, on social media, it may not even be the best player, but it could be, it could be, you know, they could create massive amounts of, of wealth or income from just creating good content by being on the team, you know, and they could leverage skills from like marketing, you know, marketing and social media marketing that, that would prepare them into the future for, for some other employment opportunity. It's um so it, this this would be unthinkable to do in other episodes of this podcast, but since we've already talked about two college world series, we'll kind of like skip over your senior year. You have another great year. You come as close as you possibly can to a three peat. Um, you wrap up arguably the greatest college world series career in history. You walk off the mound against Arizona in the College World Series final. You know, baseball moves quick. You're playing pro ball pretty soon after that. But when you look back, reflect on what you were able to accomplish. I know guys are supposed to have confidence, but considering your entire body of work and what came of your college career, like how how would you classify how good your college career ended up getting? Is it surprising to you, you know, if you would have told yourself that at 18? Did you have those grand imaginations? Well, you know, I mean, first, obviously, yeah. <laughs> the first baseman in all American, right. Michael Roth. Yeah, I would say, you know, I, I would always, you know, as, as a kid, I wanted to play professionally. And so I had always wanted to be the best and, and wanted to be, like, the best player. Um, I would say a lot of what I was driven at just in, in general life was was trying to be the best at, you know, whatever I did. And, you know, so baseball was no different. And, and when it... I became a pitcher it was kind of like 
trying to trying to become the best possible pitcher that I could be. And so I felt like, you know, I probably, you know, got everything I could out of out of myself in in my college career, you know, and some of that I'm definitely like super grateful for having coach Calvi as a coach, you know, and and just some of the good luck that came along, right? Like, you know, coach Calvi telling me to drop down and that really teaching me how to throw breaking balls, you know, quite frankly, before I dropped down, I had a terrible breaking ball. And when I started dropping down sidearm, it helped me learn how to throw a slider, like even like sidearm and over the top. And in my, you know, in my pro career, one of my better pitches was, was an over the top slider that I started using more and more. And so I think that was, that was one of those things that, um, you know, some of the, some of the fortunate things that happened to me in my college career, um, along with the hard work that I, that I put into it, you know, led me to where, led me to that professional career and having a great, great successful college career individually and with the team that we had. So you signed in the ninth round, the angels, uh, under slot bonus. So when you signed, did you have a, in mind, you know, a realistic timetable to get to the big leagues because you've had this illustrious college career, but they sign you under slot as a senior signed your quote unquote, a non-prospect in that kind of way in terms of, you know, compared to like your, you know, Jackie Bradley jr. Guys like that. Did you have, you know, did you think like, Hey, I'm going to, you know, I've got a path to the big leagues at such and such a time. Um, I would say yeah, and my my, uh, my timeline was was a lot slower than than what it ended up being. I was gonna um, say, <laughs> you know, I would say I didn't even necessarily have a timeline. Like when I got into pro ball, you know, my kind of thought was this that you know I'd give it five seasons, you know, five years to to try to see where I would end up. Um, and then I would make a decision. Part of that was because I, I had won this scholarship that I didn't end up using. That was like I had to use within five years. <laughs> and so basically it was, I figured by the five years I'd either had, you know, made it to the big leagues or it had turn, turned out that I would need to, you know, go find another another path from uh, making money and and you know, moving on to the next phase of life. So let's fast forward nine months. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So then, you know, 2013 came and it was, it was, um, a lot quicker than, than I definitely would have imagined, you know, in 2013. So I I would say when I got drafted, you know, I went out and I think I showed up like sometime around this time, actually, I think I reported like July, July 7th out to Orem, Utah, and the bad part was I think I was just coming off like 145 innings as a senior. And so that was that's almost like more innings than most starters throw in, in the minor leagues. And so the Angels, you know, they wanted me to pitch, but or they wanted me to be in like a starting rotation, but I was only allowed to throw two innings every time I went out. And um, based off everything I've told you up to this point, I'm sure you can imagine that I hated that. So... It, um, I would say my first two, two months of pro ball were miserable, you know, cause I wasn't pitching. I was just kind of going through, you know, going through the normal routine of a starting pitcher, but only able to throw two innings every time out. And so I report back in February in 2013, I report to camp and I show up to like mini camp where I didn't go to big league spring training. I was just 
they bring you in as like a an extra guy and so i got to pitch in two big league spring training games and i was like one of those guys that kind of filled the gaps so you know if a guy like a big league um if one of the big league pitchers goes out there and doesn't throw you know like his whole inning that he's supposed to they would have brought in somebody like me in 2013 and I'd throw in the rest of the inning whether it was an out or two outs so I got to do I got to do that twice and I was having a really good spring ended up pitching really well and um, Scott Service was our assistant general manager at the time and I remember this was probably four or five days before they were like breaking camp and assigning teams and everything and he had asked me he was like you know where do you think you should pitch this year and you know, realistically, I was—I thought I was going to high A, um, but one of the things that I noticed as camp was going along that there weren't many left-handed pitchers in the Angels organization, and so he was like, you know, Scott Scott asked me where did I think I should pitch that year, and so I of course told him the big leagues, and with with no smile on my face, <laughs> and he. Um, <laughs> At first, he didn't really know what to say, and he was like, no, seriously, like, where, where do you think you should pitch? And I was like, the big leagues, and, and you know, repeated myself, and and I was like, what else do you want me to tell you? And he was like, well, we're trying to decide whether we should send you to double A or high A, and I was like, well, I think, I, I kind of forget what happened after that conversation, but, you know, I think me telling them, hey, I'm not... You know, I'm not just here to try to make it to to A ball this year or to double A, you know, kind of telling them that I was groomed. I think that one put me in line, but two, I had done the right thing. I had had a really good camp. And then coupled with the fact that the angels had some guys get hurt and they didn't have, they didn't have uh, many left-handed pitchers in their organization at the time. So walk me through then that April getting, getting the call. Was it a surprise? Yeah. I mean, entirely, you know, I had made one start in double A. I was, I think I was one of the younger guys in double A that year. And, um, I had made one start in double A. Uh, we go to Frisco, Texas. We hit the, hit the road for the first time that year. And, um, we go to Frisco, Texas and we had gotten the brake speed off of that that night. And, you know, as is typical, I was screwing around in the dugout. Um, and I was supposed to start like in two nights or something. And I got called into the manager's office and I was kind of thinking like, oh, what did I do? And the, um, you know, the, the manager, Tim Bogar was like, Hey, congratulations. You're going to the big leagues. And I looked at Mike Campton. He was our pitching coach at the time. And I was like, are you, I was like, are you guys like, you know, are you messing with me? And they were like, no. And Hampton looked at me like he was kind of a, he played a bunch of games with guys and he was, you know, he was he liked to mess around. And so he's like, no, we're being serious. And I, I was like, show me the flight. You know, I thought they were just trying to screw with me. Cause I was, you know, kind of, a, I was a rookie, even in minor leagues, I was a rookie and they showed me the flight and I was like, holy shit, I am going to the big leagues. So, you know, I walked out and all the guys like congratulated me and I went and called, I tried to call my mom first cause she was in California. So I was flying, I knew I was flying out to LA and so she was in California and I was going to try to call her to catch her because I believe she was taking a red eye that night and she didn't answer. And then I called my dad and he didn't answer cause it was like 10 o'clock. It was probably 10 30, you know, Texas time, which is, you know, hour, 
hour behind um, East Coast. And then I called my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, and she didn't answer. And I called my best friend, and I was like, hey, man, I just got called up. And he was like, oh, cool, where's AAA? And I was like, no, I'm going to the show. And um, and he was like, holy shit. And I was like, yeah, I know. Um, so, you know, he was the only one that answered. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was pretty crazy. You know, I was packing my stuff and fly out the next morning at, like, 530 or something, catch a, I think, or it was, like, catch a, catch a uh, cab at 530. You know, that was pre-Uber everywhere. And, um, you know, it was a whirlwind of a day. I think I flew in, like caught a quick nap at the hotel and then showed up at like one o'clock. And I remember when I walked into the clubhouse, you know, it was like Trout, Trumbo and Ionetta sitting on the, sitting on the, um, like on the sofas, like hanging out. And I introduced myself and everybody was like, well, where, where were you? I was like, oh, I was in double A and everybody's asking me, oh, how many years have you been playing? I was like, oh, this is my first season. So, you know, I think everybody was as surprised as I was too. Did you feel like out of place at all? Oh yeah. hundred percent. I mean, I felt like the biggest imposter out there, you know, um, you know, Scott, um, Scott Downs was one of the, one of the, like the, he's, I guess he was like the oldest guy in the bullpen at the time, kind of like the bullpen leader. And, there were several other older guys that, you know, were giving me shit for having literally made, like, had been drafted the year before. And, again, I wasn't in big league camp, so none of these guys knew me. You know, I had never seen them. I had never really known any of them. So I was just some foreign guy to them. Um, <laughs> you know, and then I get in that day. I get in later that night. I think I pitched the the eighth and the ninth. I think we're down, like, four to two. And um, it ends up pull horse walks off hits a double to walk off and, and I get the win um <laughs> to, to get my first win it was a it was a wild night so that that first stint in LA do you think at that point you're you know you've made the big leagues less than a year after being drafted are you seeing like I've got 15 years in front of me pitching oh man yeah I thought I, I thought I was gonna be like just a bajillionaire um yeah I thought I was gonna be a millionaire I thought I'd have life figured out um but it, I mean, it was, you know, it was so wild. I would say that that year was, 2013 was like a really hard year. And, and part of it was, you know, when I was, I started out as a starter, had, had made one start in double A, then went as, was in the bullpen and then made it like a quick start in the big leagues. And then that, that was like the start of just bouncing around that entire year. I would say making it to the big leagues was awesome. Like it changed you know, I, I did end up paying off my student loans because I made it the big league so quick. Um, but it, it also, I would say in 2013, you know, there wasn't a time where I was at a location for longer than six weeks. Um, and so that, what was your living situation bouncing back and forth? Man, I racked up so many Hilton points that year. It was crazy. Um, yeah, I, I racked up so many, so many Hilton points and so many, um, so many, uh, sky miles. Yeah. I mean, as a double a guy, you know, I went from making 1250 a month. And so I was living, I was paying 300 bucks a month living in the, like the, we had the, my first in my double a apartment, it was, we had a, like basically like a kitchen room for like the, t- the kitchen table. And that was like, I had hung a sheet up and that was my room. 
Oh, <laughs> and man, I was like, that's, we've had some good room stories on this spot. That might be yeah, my favorite, literally was, living in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, I was basically like, you know, living like off of the kitchen, but had like a sheet up. So that was like my room and I was paying 300 bucks a month and it was great because, you know, I was making 1200 a month. And then I got called to the big leagues and I was up, I think I was up for like 17 days or like two weeks the first time. And then I literally, right when I got sent down, Nick and Nick Miranda and I, we were, we were with the angels together and we were in double a and they, they sent us both back to double a and like, we literally flew back together. I stepped off the plane in Arkansas and my phone rang and it was them telling me that I was flying back the next morning and I flew back, stayed two days, didn't get activated, flew back to Arkansas and then was there for four days and then flew back to the big leagues. Like it was, so it was constant. I think, you know, every time that I was about to like move into an apartment or do something, I got moved. So it was like constantly living out of a bag. I'd have one bag in LA and one bag in Arkansas and it would like get, just get mailed and shipped all over. Do you feel like you got better as a pitcher that year? Or were able to kind of work on what you needed to work on? No, you know, that's where I think 2013 was was a really cool year, obviously, like making it to the big leagues, getting to pitch. You know, 2013 was the time that I got the most time in the big leagues. But I, I definitely think that stunted my development to where, you know, I came out and I was like throwing with completely different shit. I mean, I started in in spring training, I was sitting like 89 to 92, which like where the hell did that come from? I don't know, you know. And by like the third time I'd been sent down to the minor leagues and I was starting again, I think I was like throwing 85 again. And they asked me if my, my something was wrong with my arm. And I was like, no, I was like, but I've just been bouncing back and forth between starting, relieving, starting and relieving. Yeah. Nothing's wrong with your arm unless you're in the big leagues. Then it's okay. Then you, then you can say, yeah, I might need some deal time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I played it wrong. I played it completely wrong. Um, but yeah, no, I think that was like, I think that stunted my development that year just from moving around. Um, you know, in, in hindsight's 2020, it was like awesome to, to have the experience. But, you know, if I, if I have three months of starting in double A and like growing as a, as a pitcher, does that lead me to have more success later on? You know, and I ended up going to the fall league that year because of how much I moved around. They wanted me to get more innings in and, so it made it like a, an extremely long year just from playing from, I think, I, you know, when I first went to camp was February 15th. And I when I flew home from Fall League, from Arizona Fall League, was the week before Thanksgiving. So, you know, it was just a long, a long season. And in that 2014 year, the year after, when you spend most of the year in AA, you're kinda, you kind of, I guess, get to settle in a little bit. When you go from, you know, a year or two prior, you, you know, every Friday night is, is a big time game. It be especially like when you get into April it means a lot. You're pitching into the college world series every year. Um, you know, what is your, what's your relationship like to the minor league games you're starting winning? Most of the games you pitched in college were about as high level of amateur games as you can get. Yeah. You know, that's like the, I, I would say for me, that was probably the hard part about professional baseball was just the individuality of it. Um, you know, it, it does become like more about how did you perform that night rather than, you know, winning the game. Um, 
you know, I would say to me the biggest thing about pro ball, you know, my first, I think my first appearance, if you go back to in 2012 when I got drafted, I went to Orem, Utah, right? So short season, um, Orem, Utah is 45 minutes south of Salt Lake and it's like part of the Mormon territory. And so my, I made my first appearance was like on the road and I came in as a reliever, but my first start was in Orem on a Sunday. And I remember just going through the routine and I kind of like looked up right before I threw my first pitch and there were less than 50 people in the stands. And I was like, holy shit. Um, (laughs) this is like way different than, um, than playing at South Carolina. It's not the Clemson game. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit different crowd. So you know, in pro ball, obviously you're not always pitching in front of only 50, 50 people, but you know, there's, there's games when you play in front of 4,000 and then there's games when you play in front of 400. So there's, you know, there, there's not really a crowd aspect to it. Um, and, and there's, I would say that for the most part, there's a lack of like a team aspect too. You know, everybody wants themselves you know everybody wants to win but at the end of the day everybody's like how did how did I do individually and you know that that kind of rules it when you start doing the you know kind of the have glove will pitch affiliation shovel shuffle you're kind of you know you're bouncing around a bit couple different organizations you get a little you know get a one more big league appearance with the rangers when do you, as someone who had already had their mind on life after baseball early in career, you know, you, you decide to come back, you got your degree. When do you really start letting the wheels turn and look towards when might be the right time to hang it up? Yeah, that's, um, you know, that was something I like toyed with um, in my mind a good bit. I think, you know, one of the things about when I was with the Angels was, when I was there that, that, you know, Sosha was the manager and then Jerry DePoto was the, the GM. And so like, it was very much a, the, the front office and the coaching staff did not gel. And like, they, they could probably try to act like we as players never noticed it. I could tell you as a player that was constantly being shuffled around, I sure noticed it, you know, the, and it, and that was part of why when I got designated for the second time, I just took my release because it felt like the two people never were going to get on the same page. And it felt like, you know, DePoto liked me, but it, it felt like Sosha didn't. So when you're bouncing around like that, you know, when you leave the team that drafted you and quote unquote has an investment in you, you're trying to, you're trying to find a team that can use you and you can use to, to get to the next level. Um, you know, and, and I had a fun time when I was with the Indians and, and near the end of the season, it kind of trailed off um, and didn't pitch well. And, and then I ended up landing with the Rangers um, and had a really good year. And, you know, it felt like I had put myself in a good position to to stay there. And they, you know, they ended up not calling me up in September and then designated me in the middle of it. And that felt like a, a pretty good indication of you know that that they didn't necessarily want me back for the next year and so you know at that point you're just trying to find like the best opportunity um I will say one of the things that I did start to desire near the end of my career was trying to go overseas and you know there were some conversations with some teams and nothing that that ever materialized but 
that was that was something that I really wanted to do and probably why I held on as long as I did. And, and part of it too, I would say, you know, I played four different stints down in the Dominican Republic. And I loved going down there. My first stint was after that 2015 season with the Indians. Did that get a little closer to the Clemson-South Carolina game, the, uh, the fans yeah, down there? A 100%. You know, and what I loved about playing down there was there were a few things. First, it was all about winning. They only cared about winning because, you know, it's like it is their, like, you know, it is their, like, big leagues down there. And it's such a small island. They All the players know each other. Um, and it's just baseball in its purest sense. You're not playing in front, in front of like, you're not, you're playing in front of tons of fans and fans that are cheering you on, but you're not playing at like the best stadium. It's not like the nicest field in the world, but it is so much fun, um, for baseball. And then from a starter's perspective, as a starting pitcher, you didn't have to go to the games if you didn't pitch. So like days that the team would travel and I wasn't starting, I just hung out at the hotel and like relaxed. So it was like a fun it was always fun to go down there and play because the baseball was a ton of fun. And it was like the baseball that I was, you know, that I'd come to love and enjoy. Um, the, I guess your last stint was, was pitching for, for Great Britain in the, um, in the European baseball championships. Did I have that correct? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yep. I, I, do you have any sort of grasp on British baseball culture? Like, you know, might we see Great Britain qualify for a WBC of the Olympics at some point? Or you know, um, we were actually do really they need close. To stick to soccer for a while. <laughs> well, yeah, I'd say soccer is definitely the the more in the running. So I played for Great Britain in 2012. Was my first experience with them in the WBC qualifier um, in Regensburg, Germany, and we were not very good at that time. Um, and then in 2016, we played the WBC, WBC qualifier in um, Brooklyn. And so that was like, I guess, kind of like the the bitter part of me was I wasn't, you know, I wasn't playing with Texas because they had designated me, which I was kind of pissed about because I felt like I had pitched well enough that year to, to get a September call up. But it allowed me to play for Great Britain. And I love playing for them because, again, it's all about winning. It's so much fun. What was the roster? Was it a lot of guys like you with yeah, – obviously your mom is from, from yeah. Great Britain. Was it a lot of guys like that or were there any yeah. born yeah. and bred? It was mostly guys like me, like Plastic Brits. And then we also had – like we had um, a bunch of Bahamians on there. So like uh, Jazz um, – Jazz Chisholm was on the team. Oh, that's um, a good guy to have on the team. Yeah. So, like, you know, and granted, he was like an A-ball at the time. But in 2016, I mean, we ended up playing Team Israel, and we t- we went to the finals. And, you know, we were in a position that, you know, we were in a good position to actually to potentially win. You know, I, that year I pitched against Israel in the first game that we ended up losing. And what sucks about the WBC is they have these like pitching, you know, limits where I think I came out with like 70, 79 pitches after six innings because they have an 85 max limit pitch count. So, um, you know, but team Israel, we, we faced them and, you know, you know what they did in the WBC. So we, we had a decent set of arms, um, and some decent bats in a lineup but in 2019, like, it's a completely different team. So in, when you go to the Euros, in the Euros, you actually have to have a passport. So, you know, some of the guys that don't have a uh, have a British passport, like, um, 
like some of the Bahamian guys. And, and it's also in the middle of the season. Like a lot of the minor league teams or the major league orgs are not going to release their players to go play in the European Championship. So from that perspective, you do have some more like homegrown British baseball players on the team. Well, very, very interesting and a cool thing that you got to experience. But um, after that, you, you hang it up. Um, if you had the chance to give either your 18-year-old self heading into South Carolina or your 22-year-old self heading into pro ball some advice, you know, would you? I mean, things worked out pretty well at South Carolina. And, you know, if you did, what would that advice be for either of those ages? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think it it would all revolve around, like, not identifying as a baseball player. I think that's something that like I constantly struggled with, Um, you know, and as I, as I got older in my college career, I was able to kind of separate that and my my identity was not tied up to like my failures or successes on the field near the end of my career, at least in college. And then, you know, some of that kind of creeped back into my professional um, life. So I think it would, again, it's something, you know, and that's something that I, I think that I fight even now to not tie like my identity of like my successes and failures and work to who I am as a human being. little rapid fire for you and then I'll let you get out of here. Sure. Favorite SEC ballpark. Cannot say, cannot be South Carolina. Arkansas, hands down. Toughest SEC crowd. Probably Ole Miss. Also, I will say caveat, I did not pitch at LSU ever. We, we never played at LSU. We, they rotated off our schedule for two years. So, LSU, oh. yeah. So, I never got to play in front of, I never got to play at LSU. Important caveat to note yeah. there. Uh, is there any team you hate more than Clemson? Um, No, I would say Clemson was definitely the most hated team. I will say the fans that I hate the most are ECU fans. They were like the meanest, meanest fans that I've ever come across. There is nothing to do there except drink. So, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were the meanest yeah. damn fans out there. Uh, favorite minor league ballpark? Ooh, wow, that's tough. Um, I'll start with, I think one of my favorites that I got to play um, in the international league, and I forget how they reset these, but I played in Columbus. That was a wonderful ballpark to play in. Um, I think that was probably my favorite on like the East Coast. And then, yeah, I guess I'll just go with Columbus overall. There are a lot of good ballparks out there in, in AAA and stuff. Do you have a nightmare minor league bus ride story? Yeah. You didn't spend a lot of time in the lower minor, so. Right. No, I, thankfully I didn't. Um, I would say, but I mean, in AA, you do take some hellacious bus trips. Um, there was one time when we were traveling to Frisco, and uh, I was in AA, I think it was 2014, and we had showed up late i think we were coming from like corpus christi or something and we had showed up like late in the night and the hotel you know typically we would just show up grab our room and like pass out and the, we got there and the hotel was like uh we don't have any rooms down for you <laughs> so, oh no <laughs> so obviously like our you know they're scrambling and they were like we do have a we do have a room like they were going to put us in like a conference room and so like we literally started to lay down like on our bags and that was where we were going to sleep for the night because I'm pretty sure it was like two or three in the morning and um 
so yeah, we ended up like laying there for like 30 minutes and then somebody said, and then they ended up pulling us into like another hotel that was, you know, 15, 20 minutes away that we stayed for literally, it was like seven hours and then we transitioned back to the other hotel room. Incredible. That is, that is just classic minor leagues. Last one I've got for you. Uh, you had a lot of these, your favorite dog pile. Mm, Favorite dog pile. I think one of my favorites was going, I, I think I'm going to go with the Omaha dog pile and um, the the dog pile to go to Omaha in 2011. Yeah. I think that was like, I had the best jump for me personally, you know, I got the best <laughs> jump and like, I did end up rolling off of it, but it was a good, it was a good dive onto the pile. And you avoided being that guy at the bottom who just gets, gets crushed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't want to be that guy. Michael Roth, thank you so much for coming on from Phenom to the Farm. Really appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for having me, man. Absolutely. And that's it for today's episode of From Phenom to the Farm. Huge thanks to Michael Roth for joining. This was one of my favorite episodes. If you enjoyed it, go check out all the other past interviews. Episodes of this podcast drop every other Tuesday. Subscribe so you don't miss one. Go to BaseballAmerica.com. Check out all the draft coverage. Subscribe for the draft issue. It's going to come out in August. A lot of great stuff there. And we will catch you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. At Highland, we're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com.